It's a good day, isn't it? God is a faithful God. He continues to demonstrate that to us. And as we come to this passage in John chapter 13, we have left what Pastor Aaron has described as a book of signs, or at least a portion of the Gospel of John that pointed to Christ and all the signs that he would make that would point forward to who he is and what was to come. And as we come to John chapter 13, you have to remember that in 1 through 12, that encompassed years of Jesus' life and his ministry. And then we come to chapter 13, and there's a sudden kind of halt, if you will. There's an, a slowing down dramatic, because now we go from years of knowing who Christ is throughout his ministry of the works and the miracles and the signs pointing forward. And now we've slowed down, and now we're going into days. That is all. So as you think and as you keep in mind over the next several weeks going up to Easter, that we're talking only about hours of momentum that we are tracking now from week to week. So there's exponential impact because John really slows this down saying, pay attention right now. These are important details because all of this right now, what John is writing, is preparing not only us as we read through the Gospels, as we see him address his disciples, but Jesus is preparing himself as the sacrifice to be laid on the cross. And he's preparing his disciples and how they should respond to that and that outworking that should flow from them after that. And so now as we breathe through these next chapters, as it slows down, as these things resonate in our hearts, let us take careful attention as we walk through this. He's preparing us. He's preparing his disciples, and he's preparing himself as the offering. Now, what I'm about to say is not particularly easy, but don't worry. I have discussed this with my wife in regard to my vulnerability from the pulpit, and I have permission to share this with you, and this may make you feel a bit uncomfortable, but up to only a few months ago, we had a really, really dirty guest room. <laughs> like, it was bad. Like, I don't know if any of you happen to have a guest room in your house, um, or if you happen to have that spare room um, that, for whatever reason, things seem to collect, that we think that we can shut the door, and at some point they're out of our mind, that uh, the dirtiness, the filthiness, the buildup within that room there's like a crescendo, and that whatever prompting in our hearts that for some reason we respond to it by saying we at some point need to clean the guest room. And so not too long ago, um, my wife and I set out to do that. Now, as we did, you have to realize what is in our guest room, because I don't think you ever really grasped fully. You, you know it's, it's dirty. We, you know that you've put things there, but you don't know how bad it is. And so this is just a listing of some of the things that I can remember. It's full of all kinds of random things. Cassette tapes. Cassette tapes. <laughs> Blazers I haven't worn since my college interviews when they had college interviews, office supplies I had when I was self-employed, clothing I haven't been able to try on, which Jackie has asked me to get rid of. I'm sorry. And not to mention various cables that connect routers and modems from 2004. I'm sure they are still effective and efficient. 
under the bed are scores of bills that needed to be filed from, well, this is pretty vulnerable, so we'll skip how long they've been there. But maybe some of you have those spare bedrooms in which you do the same thing, the catch-all. We knew it needed to be cleaned as we would often use it to cover um, over a multitude, if you will, of sins in our house. And over the last eight years, we've actually slept there when one of us had been sick. So we set out to do it. However, when we went about the purging, filing, and cleaning, it was worse than we thought. Anybody familiar with that? You go to clean something, it's actually worse than you thought. It's going to take longer than you thought, and you start to restructure how you're going to do it, and next thing you know, you're adding an addition to the house. How did that happen? (laughs) These are the things, and it was so bad that Jackie's allergies just led to all kinds of shredding and sneezing and shredding and sneezing all day long. It was just a much bigger project than we'd understood, and Saturday afternoon would not suffice. However, we set our minds to do it because the cleaning of our guest room served a purpose, not just for us, but for those who would use it. Similarly, as we come to this passage, the disciples have been Jesus' closest companions for three years, yet as he approaches them during this last supper, their understanding of what was taking place was yet again at a loss. As Christ would look to wash his disciples' feet, their receptivity was less than welcoming because they truly had no idea what was taking place. No idea. They had no idea the type of cleansing that was necessary in their lives because this cleansing, which goes beyond a ceremonial foot washing, served a necessary purpose, not just for them, but for those who they minister to once the gospel would go out. And Christ would go back to the Father. Church, one thing we need to recognize, and I think the purpose of this passage, is that in Christ, we are cleansed. And because of that, we are then commissioned. Now, I do want to walk through some of the first verses before I get to the the foot washing, which is where we'll kind of land for a little bit. And I don't want to just brushstroke over them, but due to time and what you might throw at me, I want to make sure I get this in a timely manner. But in verses 1 through 3, um, if you can read anything in the, um, 1 through 3, what it speaks to is God's omniscience, his foreknowledge, his intention, and overall his sovereignty in regard to the situation. In other words, he's walking into this Last Supper with his eyes fully open with a purpose that they are coming to this point where they are dining together as friends around the table and there is intention involved with every single one of them. He has orchestrated this. He knew what was going on. He actually says in verse 1, he knew his hour had come. There were certainly no surprises. He was not caught off guard. Even Satan's entering into Judas's heart. If anything, the text shows us just how much Christ wanted to complete the very task that he was set out to do. His love and commitment for those to whom the Father had given him would be carried out, and verse 1 says, to the end, or to the fullest extent necessary. In other words, if I could explain it as a racer might say in an interview after winning a race, he left it all out on the table. He was spent, met every necessary requirement of fulfillment. It wasn't just that he was tired, it was that he completed it fully. 
It was absolutely necessary for Christ to ascend and note in verses 1 and 3, it says to return to the Father, taking his sovereign place at the right hand of God on our behalf. And this is, there's no piece of information that's small, okay? We talk about the ascension kind of like, oh yeah, that's right, he ascended. I think in our gospel message, we often proclaim that Christ died, he was crucified, and he was raised again, and typically it stops there. And I don't say that that's a bad summary of the gospel, I'm just suggesting that it might be incomplete, and that John wants to draw us in our eyes and our attention to the fact that his end goal wasn't just to rise from the dead, and to conquer death, his end goal, as it says in verses 1 and 3, was to return to his place of kingship at the right hand of the Father. Amen. There is a purpose for that. There is intention in that. Okay? He's our acceptable sacrifice back to the Father. He's our Lord and our King at the right hand of God. And he's our intercessor and would have it no other way. If he did not rise again and sit next to the Father, we do not have the intercessor that prays our prayers, oh, imperfectly as they are offered, perfectly to the Father who knows our hearts and has intent for those who he calls his own. And so now as we move to verses 4 and 5, we see Jesus as he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them from the, with the towel that was wrapped around him. I want us for a second to understand what is going on. We might see this as no big deal, and we might even be numb to the fact that we've heard this story a lot of times as a child, and maybe we even think about this when we celebrate communion at least once a month. I don't want us to be numb to this fact. However, this would be something that should shock us, as it certainly shocked the disciples. To understand the extent of the lesson and the truth Jesus is about to teach, we need to understand foot washing to a Palestinian Jew in the first century. For a Jew, external purity and cleansings were common as to remain set apart for God. We know that. We see it all laid out in Levitical law, how it is to remain pure, how it is to remain clean, how it is to say, hey, I'm set apart from the nations around us. I'm God's chosen. I'm God's elect. Therefore, I need to look that way certainly on the outside, but that should be something that reflects what's going on on the inside in worship to God. So it's customary to have one's feet washed in various settings and certainly in homes. Walking with sandals in the hot Palestinian sun, you can imagine the dirt and the grime that someone might accumulate on their feet. Something weird to even discuss from the pulpit to discuss dirty feet, but that's a reality that shows us where our hearts are. This task was to be performed by the lowliest member of the household. That being said, typically, listen to this, not even a Jewish slave would be expected to do this. The lowest member, not even a Jewish slave. If the household afforded, a Gentile slave would have done this. That is the task we are looking at. These are the eyes by which we should view Jesus. Jesus was king, acting as a servant. In cultural terms, he was taking the form of a slave in that sense. What's also important to note is that it was customary that the host provided the means by which one would wash their feet. Just so that we understand the setting here, in the Last Supper, who is the host? 
Jesus. Who are the guests? The disciples. Jesus is the host. Think about where the host also sits at a table, generally the head. The king gets up, and he then begins to wash his guests' feet. He, the king, now a servant, goes and washes from the head of the table his disciples' feet that are gathered around the table. There are two cleansings and one example to note as we look at this passage. And the first type of cleansing happens in the exchange between Jesus and Peter, starting in verse 6. If you have your Bibles, follow along. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. Now, Every time I read scripture and almost every time I read Peter in his exchange with Jesus, I thank the Lord for Peter. If it wasn't for Peter, things would not be explained to somebody at my caliber in my mind. I would be the one who says to, to Jesus and responds in ways that are just not, not appropriate. And many of you who know me might even say amen to that. God is always gracious in humbling us from the pulpit. <laughs> but the reality is this. I, I, I think about this exchange, and I liken it almost to a math teacher or to a parent who's like, you know what? I need to teach you the fundamentals of showering. You need to shower every day. It will be well with you later on in life. If you have wisdom on how to direct me accordingly, please, I will take it graciously as I teach my kids. So, um, but I also liken it to a math teacher who's wanting to teach their kids math facts, and maybe a third grade teacher who's saying, hey, we need to take this test. You have math facts. There's 100 problems. You need to do that within a certain time limit. And the kids eventually will bemoan saying, why do we have to do this? We're never going to use math in life. This is impossible. I don't know why you're having us do this every single day. And the math teacher wants to say, trust me, you're going to use this later on. But why? But why? I don't understand. And next thing you know, the math teacher has to pause and say, well, later on in life, in a few years down the road, you're going to understand you need to count things, you're going to buy things, you're going to understand how this is going to process. So what, what Jesus does now is stops, and instead of saying, and listening, and, and the disciples listening, saying, you're going to hear me later on in life, and you're going to understand this in its fullness and its time, he begins to tell them, and he pauses. And in verse 7, he says, you may not understand now what I'm doing, but afterwards you will understand. So in this exchange, Jesus begins to explain to Peter what is happening. Number one, Jesus' first cleansing, the foot washing. It's a literal foot washing, obviously. It's meant to be symbolic of two gospel realities to come. First, it symbolizes that we are made clean in Christ. If we are in Christ, we are already clean completely clean, as Jesus emphasizes in verse 10. There isn't a need for further cleansing, as the blood of Christ would fully satisfy any sin that may eternally stain and dirty our hearts. Jesus is not speaking of the external washing of the body, nor of any ceremonial distinctions 
that necessitate cleaning from the foot to the whole body. He's pointing forward to the reality that if you are in Christ, you are clean. What Jesus is about to do will satisfy all requirements as there will be no need for them to apply anything other than the blood of Christ. It will suffice for every stain and blemish that their hearts can bring about. I remember in high school, a friend of mine wanted to make some extra money. He began selling the Auric vacuum cleaner. And he would make appointments at homes, and of course he would solicit those of his friends in high school to say, hey, tell your parents I'm going to come over and I'm going to vacuum their room. Okay, I'll do my part. You are my friend. Come over to my house. And I would watch his spiel, and what would happen, and this is no slight to anybody who sold Zoric vacuum cleaners. I hope you made your money and tithe off of that. But what he did was he would say, you know what, why don't you vacuum right now with the vacuum cleaner that you have, and let's see what happens after that I vacuum and follow up with you. And, and our vacuum would do, you know, it would vacuum and get stuff in the bag, and um, it would be great, and we would think in our minds through the presentation that our room and our floor is clean. <laughs> oh no. But he would come with his Oric vacuum cleaner and he would vacuum a little bit, take out what was sucked up after our vacuum cleaner was deficient and place it down. He would vacuum a little bit more, take out what the vacuum cleaner had sucked up and lay it on our floor. And he would do this for the entire living room floor as part of the sales promotion. My mom being much wiser than I am, thanked him for the presentation and let him be on his way. Um, he would get paid for that. But the reality is, he's pointing out that what you think is sufficient in your cleansing is not sufficient. You need something more. And so Peter's objection or lack of understanding is not uncommon with the church today. It usually surfaces in two responses. One takes it this way, my sins are actually too dirty for Christ's blood. Even this side of the cross, we come to Christ, but see sin as something that is impossible for Christ to forgive. Our choices in the past are continually brought to the forefront of our lives as its paralyzing effects haunt our mind and our emotions. And I will pause here for one second to say, many of us, and this is just not people who are new to Christ, as we've heard testimonies of people coming to Christ over the last two weeks for membership, this is something that is real for people who are in their 40s and their 50s and their 60s and their 70s, all the way into their deathbed. There are regrets that they did not live a life that was worthy of Christ. And what that does is it puts the gospel and works on its head, and they don't understand that Christ's blood is sufficient completely and entirely. The work that Christ did on our behalf covers all all sin. That regardless of what we've done in our life, be it that it may, that it was bad and an offense to God, has been placed on Christ, and his blood cleanses us regardless of what our past looks like. That is joyful. It's the purpose of the gospel. That is why it frees us. That is why his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The goodness of God, it says, regardless of the sin that is there, I present to you the yoke that I have, that no matter how bad in your eyes that you have been, that no matter how bad those in the church might point at you and say, no matter the scarlet letter that you might think is around your neck, God has washed you clean, completely clean, as verse 10 says. 
He wants his disciples to know this gospel reality that the ritual will point to that. 1 John 1.19, a familiar verse for many of us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all, all unrighteousness. The amazing news of the gospel is that as Christians, we are saved and we are saved completely. Number two, the other reaction to this often as we see our evangelistic attempts thwarted, if you will, by those whose hearts are hardened, is I don't need to be cleansed. Now, this can flesh itself out in many ways. I will not go through all of them, but we rely on our works or some form of merit that we think makes us right before a holy God, not realizing that all have fallen short and we need Christ's blood applied to our lives. Christ points directly to this in verse 8 when he says, If I do not wash you, if I, if Christ, meaning the only way to the Father before this holy God, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. It is Christ and Christ alone that cleanses our sins so that we can come before a holy God. I don't care how many flips you do or how many times you serve in the nursery or with the youth, and God bless you when you serve with the youth. I don't care how many activities in which you might be involved or if you founded the church on day one. How many hours in prayer that you've put before God or even demonstrated up here. They all might be good things in and of themselves, but if you are counting that as weight that you're going to bring to a holy God, that scale, that scale will be unbalanced. Completely unbalanced. Our works, though good, should be a response to the gospel that is in us, that has made us alive in our hearts. And the second thing that this cleansing symbolizes is that we are sustained in Christ. So not only that we are cleaned and cleaned completely, that our cleansing is sufficient by Christ's blood, we are sustained by the same thing. In verse 10, Jesus says to Peter that he no longer needs to wash his body as it's already clean. He needs just to wash his feet. Christ wants to let Peter know, even though he is completely clean, the maintenance of the spiritual life would be what he needs to focus on as the bigger part is taken care of. Kostenberger likens this to confession and forgiveness. Confession and forgiveness. Maybe a bigger word or a broader word might be sanctification, that as we are in Christ, justified before God, we walk out this thing called Christianity in a life that is being sanctified, changed from glory to glory. God has breathed life into us, changed us from dead people to people who are alive. However, as we live our lives in response to that glorious truth, we will mess up, and sometimes a lot. The Bible will call that sowing to the flesh in Galatians 6.8 instead of sowing to the Spirit. Thus, God wants us to confess our sins to Him and bring them to Him fully confident that He will forgive our sins. And I want to note something here, too, and I think that this speaks to why people in the, in the process of sanctification or even in their understanding of their salvation, that assurance sometimes is out of their reach. That they, un, they don't understand why they are assured or how they are assured because they're looking at their sin as something that's so weighty that they get frustrated. And what's important to note here is this, that the judgment for our sins, meaning God's punishment for our sins and his wrath, is a done deal. That God's punishment, when we do wrong, when we choose to sow to our flesh, that punishment, this disobedience, the punishment for that is done. It is on the cross. That means when you walk as a Christian in the light of God, and that when you mess up, God is not looking to then go, 
pounce on you. Let me punish you again. Get right. Get back in line. Look. Come on. No. God has taken that punishment and placed it on his son. And in turn, Christ has given us his righteousness. The punishment for our sin is done. Now, God's discipline, as Hebrew says, is still, is still in play. And if you are an athlete or have ever been an athlete, when you discipline sometimes, is it painful? Absolutely. Sometimes discipline is painful. But the difference is punishment is enacting judgment. Discipline is looking forward to our transformation into being more Christ-like. There's a benefit to discipline. Punishment, not so much. Christ took that for us. I remember being young and when I was a youth, I was 11 years old when I first walked into a church, and I remember that I stepped into a church only because my brother had um, been taken to youth group, um, and he got this thing called saved, and I didn't understand what that was, and um, I basically eventually confessed to Christ being my Savior. I said a prayer. I was in the sound room. People prayed with me. It was pretty cool, um, but the reality is that I kept going back to the former ways I used to live, um, and it became very, very difficult, and I kept coming down on myself saying, why can't I be like this person, more specifically my brother? Why can't I be more like that? Why can't, I, why can't I act more like him? Why can't these praises be real in my life? And I lack the assurance that the gospel offers because the gospel was never rooted in my life. And so the outworkings of assurance never came to be because the Spirit never gave birth to that. And so if we are lacking assurance today, be encouraged that if you've confessed Christ in faith, God's Spirit is deposited, sealing you, and will cultivate that insurance that you are being drawn to the Father and that He will seal you for His purposes. Be encouraged this day that as you stumble, know that God desires to draw you forward in Him as He changes you from glory to glory. And so Jesus' first cleansing is also an example to us. Let's go to verse 12 here. When he had washed their feet and put, on his out, and, and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, again, at the head of the table, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so am I. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus doesn't call his disciples to do something that he has not first shown by example. He says, do as I have done in verse 14. He wants them to take the form of a servant just like he did and minister to those with whom they will rub shoulders. For those who call Jesus Lord, in verse 13 it says this, these marks of Christ should stand out. Not only that we should do them, meaning that we should serve one another, but in also looking at that visual representation, it is how we should serve one another. In humility, Jesus, God incarnate, took the form of a servant. Let that, let that sink in. When we think about the difficulties of serving our brothers and our sisters in Christ, or even serving those who do not know him, understand the example that was set before us that God, King, Maker, Creator, 
took the form of a servant at a table and washed the feet of his disciples. Let that resonate in our hearts as we look and say, why do I have to serve you now again? Paul calls us ambassadors for this very message in 2 Corinthians 5.20. We are ambassadors with this message of Christ. He goes on to note that in this way, we are expressing a gospel that suggests no one is better than anyone else in Christ. A servant and a master, they're on the same level. Each is subject to the affections and the outworking of a gospelized heart. Each, no matter where your place is in society, each of us, are subjected to Christ and need to have the outworkings there within of a gospelized heart. And we should show that to each other. Now, before you think this will be burdensome, Christ ends with the fact that there's blessing when we do these things in verse 17. When we serve, we are blessed. Meaning this understanding of being blessed is glad. It's happy. It's joyful. Something that should differentiate us from the world when the world does its good works that might look like the works that Christians do. The difference should be that our stem from a, a God who dwells in our hearts having joy and gladness and happiness to do so, not begrudgingly. Now, I'm not suggesting this is easy because we can easily go back to that sanctifying nature in us that we are sinful. But understand that this is what God wants to show to the world, that his gospel has transformed our hearts. And I do want to point out that Judas also was part of the disciples at this point. Clearly, he was not aligned, and his heart had already turned. Jesus references Psalm 41.9, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And then read the first part of that. Even my close friend in whom I trusted. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read the Gospels and I come to Judas right in the beginning, I'm thinking in my mind, oh, betrayer, oh, betrayer, oh, betrayer. The Gospel doesn't necessarily reveal the implications of that or how that walks itself out, at least not to the disciples. What he does introduce to us earlier in John chapter 6 is that Jesus chose Judas. Wrap, wrap your mind around that. Jesus chose Judas. He alludes to Psalm 41.9, not only that, but that's, that verse specifically says, and one whom I considered my friend dining at my table. When Jesus says that he was with them till the end, that his purpose was to be with them till the end, that purpose included Judas. You may minister to and serve those who are abrasive to the gospel. And I would suggest more often than not, that is the case. But we are still called to serve them. They, might, they may not fully understand your description and your proclamation of the gospel now, and you may grow weary of serving them in this capacity. However, 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 our hope and goal is that the Holy Spirit would bring to life the gospel seeds that we are planting. Don't give up. 
Don't give up. We are called to present Christ in humility and consider other, others better than ourselves. In Philippians, Paul writes in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests. He's saying don't sit there and, and hate yourself and only serve others. You do have your own interest at some level. But part of that interest, believe it or not, part of that satisfying interest is in serving others. That is the end game. Salvation is God's part. Our role is to play our part. It can be tiring, and it will get tiring. However, we are pointing to someone other than ourselves, and by God's Spirit, He will continually strengthen us to accomplish His purposes. Now, the second cleansing is figurative, and we're going to walk uh, through verses 21 to the end of the chapter and 30. I know Al didn't read that, um, but it was, we are covering the whole chapter. I do want to bring light to this. The second cleansing being figurative, Judas is now removed from the twelve. In verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke, and one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Again, thank you, Simon Peter. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was dark. An interesting conclusion to the end of that narrative, and it was dark. If you read through John, John is very much uh, symbolic. He has word pictures. One of the more frequent ones, I would suggest, beginning in chapter 1, is light and darkness. And that when the glory of God is being displayed, when God's purposes are being carried forth, there's references to light. And when it refers to darkness or somebody comes by night, such as Nicodemus in John chapter 3, that darkness symbolizes that which is maybe against Jesus or against the gospel, that which the light needs to come into. And clearly Christ knew this as he orchestrated Jesus' departure. I'm sure the disciples were beside themselves and thinking after three years of being together, in no way, none of us would raise their heel or dig in or come against you in any way. Clearly, they had no clue who it was as they didn't even understand the reasoning behind Judas leaving. But Jesus chose Judas in particular as part of the twelve. That we know, that we know for sure in, verse, in John chapter 6, verse 70. And what we are seeing is Jesus setting aside all of those who are truly his, a cleansing, as he states in verse 18. He is setting the stage for what was to take place 
including Judas's role. Including Judas's role. Christ has called each one of us to be light and darkness. I think with our culture and what it's screaming at us now and the various things that it does, whether that be through what we see revealed in politics, whether it be in school, whether it be with our friends as we look to do or not do certain things, our co-workers or even in our households, there are ways in which God has cleansed us and we as light are to speak into that darkness, the gospel and the goodness of Christ, that we are to serve one another that in that way we are to demonstrate that we are changed people, that God, through Christ, has gospelized our heart, that we are changed and that we serve each other, and in that way we point to Christ. And Jesus' foot washing highlights our need for Christ's work on the cross to not only cleanse us but to sustain us too. We should come to him joyfully, knowing that a sacrifice is enough to cover whatever we may lay at his feet, feet, be it our sin, our burdens, or our anxieties. It is this reality that compels us to serve one another because the Spirit testifies to Christ's work in each one of us. And as I close, I want to bring us to a passage that Paul, when he is addressing the church at Philippi, wants to have them picture this very moment and what it pointed toward. It's in Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, that when I first read this passage, my mind was quickly drawn to this as Paul would describe the events that would happen. And listen to the language as so much of it mimics the language that John uses, understanding the picture that it paints of what Christ truly did. Philippians 2, verses 4 through 8. Paul says this, Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. I know that for the disciples, all of this that Jesus would teach would point forward. We have the luxury and the glorious good news of the gospel in the Bible that now points us back to the work that was already accomplished, that by faith we confess that. That our hope is in Christ, and the work that he has done cleanses us completely. And not only that, it sustains us for the very purposes that one day we are going to be with God. That is the end game. That we suffer now, but only for a little. That it was purchased by God that we would be with him for eternity, completely cleansed, known by God, and knowing God as we are fully known. That is good news. That 
is what Christ was saying, this is to come. And so that as Pastor Aaron comes back in the next preceding chapters, all the way up into the crucifixion, and as we celebrate Easter, there are but hours left, and we're inching our way through the life of Christ as he points forward, explaining to the disciples and preparing them and preparing himself for the sacrifice that he would be on our behalf. Let us pray. Father, you are such a good God that you would humble yourself, that you would leave the glories of heaven so that we could come before you in fellowship with you forever. That you would condescend, yet care so deeply about us that even when we were still sinners, that we did not understand your purposes before or even immediately after, in that time, you died for us, and we thank you. And so as we think of our sin, may your sacrifice overshadow the fact, bringing joy to the fact that you have purified us, that you have justified us, that we now can come freely to you because of your goodness and your love. May that compel us to our neighbors as we serve each other, both inside the church and outside the church. You are worthy, you are good, and you are faithful. And it's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.